You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. Hello, welcome to another great podcast episode. My name is Kate Agnew. I'm the Marketing and Communications Director at Dietitian Connection. I'm really excited to introduce you to Libby Rothschild, who is a registered dietitian and educator based in New York in the United States. And Libby is going to be hosting some future podcast episodes with us. So Libby, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you so much for the introduction, Kate. I am a registered dietitian nutritionist based in New York City, and I help dietitians around the globe increase impact and income online by mastering the art and science of online marketing. I inspire you to take action in your nutrition business, and I help dietitians do this via my podcast and my Instagram feed, which is nutrition underscore business. I think it's really important that we collaborate as professionals and inspire each other to really take consistent action in our business. Thank you so much, Libby. I'm really looking forward to releasing the next few podcast episodes with you and just so grateful to have you here. Likewise, happy to be a part of the team. So hello, everyone. I'm here today with Angela Grassi. I'm very excited. She is the PCOS Nutrition Center owner and founder, and she was also given the Distinguished Ricardo Azizi PCOS Challenge Advocacy Leadership Award for her dedication to advocacy and public policy efforts that expand access to resources and support women with PCOS. Additionally, she's published the PCOS Nutrition Center Cookbook and a resource, The Dietitian's Guide, all about PCOS that's available in the second edition. Really excited to have her here today and provide such a wonderful resource in this special patient population. So, Angela, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Libby. Great to be here. Yes, and, and I'm Libby from Dietitian Connection, so really happy to be here and talk to Angela and have you get to know her and her inspirational stories. So for those of you who are not aware, can you briefly describe what PCOS is and those who are affected by the condition? Sure. So PCOS affects, on average, about 10% of the female population. This is women of reproductive age. So the estimate is really one out of 10 women of childbearing ages. And PCOS has always been viewed as a reproductive disorder. So problems with getting pregnant, having these polycystic appearing ovaries. But now with more research, we now know that PCOS is more of an endocrine disorder with a lot of metabolic complications. So it's a little bit of both. It, it does involve reproductive aspects, but it's solely um, seen as more of an repro- uh, endocrine disorder with reproductive consequences now. I had no idea it was that prevalent. One in 10 is, is that's yeah. a lot, a lot of women. It is. It is. And a lot are going undiagnosed, unfortunately. That's, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for educating us on the baseline and giving us some statistics so we can understand a little bit more about the condition. So can you expand a little bit on this statement? PCOS is one of the most underrecognized and undertreated medical conditions with numerous long-term health implications. 
Sure. So yeah, PCOS goes um, undiagnosed. It's often overlooked. On average, women with PCOS have to see at least two different doctors to get a diagnosis of PCOS. Um, when there's some classic features, if a doctor just, you know, knows more about it, if there was more awareness of PCOS, I think it would be diagnosed a little bit more. Um, and part of this problem is that the National Institutes of Health doesn't provide much funding at all to women with that have PCOS or the PCOS um, area. In fact, I think one estimate was that the NIH only allots less than 0.01% of total funding to PCOS. So um, part of it is because it's kind of in the middle. Is it a reproductive disorder? Is it an endocrine disorder? But we now know with more research that an underlying part of PCOS, it could even be part of the pathophysiology of it is insulin resistance, that the majority of women with PCOS do have elevated insulin levels or even have insulin resistance. And if not well managed, this is going to lead to cardiovascular risk factors and increases the risk for having type 2 diabetes. So it's really important that this is recognized more and it's understood more and that doctors can um, and dietitians as well can recognize some of the key features of the syndrome to help women get diagnosed earlier. So that's really great and insightful. So as dietitians, and uh, maybe in a clinical setting or even in a private practice setting, what do you have any general tips as far as how to increase awareness and maybe even increase referrals, whether it be inpatient, outpatient, or some kind of private practice capacity? What can dietitians do? Yeah, well, definitely get involved and help to promote PCOS awareness. September right now is PCOS Awareness Month, and there's a lot of great activities going on. On September 1st is World PCOS Day, and this is the first ever one that we had in cities around the world lit up teal. Teal's the color for PCOS awareness. And there's a great nonprofit called PCOS Challenge, the National Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome Association. And and they do great work like putting out this World PCOS Day and putting on an annual symposium every year. So getting, you know, um, more knowledge as well. So attending symposiums, learning more about PCOS. I now provide a PCOS training course for dietitians on how to work, um, you know, better with your patients, how to become more confident and proficient in treating patients with PCOS. So I think there's a huge role for dietitians in working with PCOS patients. And I think it's important to let doctors know that you are able to treat it and that nutrition and lifestyle changes are the primary treatment approach. And here I am, I can help your patients get pregnant and improve their equality and ovulation. And I can also help them to reduce their risk for getting gestational diabetes or developing diabetes. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. And I, I want to hear more about the resource for dietitians, I'm sure, as we progress our conversation. Or, or maybe now you could tell us a little bit about um, some of the key points. Are you teaching dietitians how to in-service providers, work with providers, educate, uh, join, a, get a relationship going? Like, how are you helping dietitians? Yeah, well, a big part of my PCOS training course for registered dietitian nutritionists, it's a seven module course, but it's a lot of education. So really understanding what PCOS is and the causes of it 
And um, there's a couple modules on supplements to really help dietitians know about what supplements can be used when and how effective they can be and at what dose. Um, and then I have modules, for example, on treating patients that have eating disorders, helping women trying to get pregnant and working with fertility providers. And then there's another chapter actually on a module on helping older women with PCOS. So that's all included in there. Yeah, and even adolescents. Because every population is different and has different needs. That's great. Excellent. What would classify as older women? What age? I would say women that are past the childbearing ages. Okay. Yeah. So as women with PCOS age, um, we know now, I mean, this is the PCOS guidelines, the updated international ones just came out this year in 2018. And they now recognize that PCOS does progress, doesn't just stop once a woman is no longer of childbearing age. So it's really interesting that there's still some um, hormones, for example, testosterone is an underlying factor in PCOS. Women with PCOS have higher levels of testosterone and male hormones called androgens. Mm -hmm. And they find that these hormones are still high even past menopause and that the insulin can still be elevated, if not worsen, um, as a woman with PCOS ages. So um, really important to, to look at PCOS throughout the whole life cycle, not just women trying to get pregnant. So if there's, you know, certified diabetes educator, I'm thinking about all the different specializations we have in the, the field of dietitians, dietetics. Why don't they have a specialization for PCOS? Wouldn't that be great? There you go. That's what I'm hoping my PCOS training course for dietitians is going to help. You're yeah. going to have the knowledge to be, be that. I mean, if it's that prevalent, one in 10, you would think that there would, I mean, it's just the way how diabetes is also growing and that the numbers are increasing and there's, we're getting a lot more care for it. So you would think that the high demand in PCOS is absolutely there. So it's there. It's yeah. there. There's a huge role for dietitians. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because of the, the heavy clinical background too. So I think it's a, it's really attractive to a lot of clinical dietitians. It's, it's really interesting. So I wanted to ask you, I know you mentioned the funding for uh, by NIH for PCOS is small. And as I'm, I believe funding for eating disorders is also pretty small, if I'm correct. So yeah. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your, you know, background helping women overcome eating disorders. And I, I, I read online on your website that, you know, working with uh, women with eating disorders and specializing in that kind of led you to PCOS. So yes. can you can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned from this experience and, and how it helped you with treating women with PCOS? Sure. So I think it definitely trained me to help women with PCOS because I would say the majority of women with PCOS actually have an eating disorder or one statistics I saw that 60% of women with PCOS binge eat in one survey. Um, and my background is in eating disorders. I was working as a campus nutritionist, helping students that um, had eating disorders. I really liked it. And then I went on to the Renfrew Center, which is a nationally recognized big eating disorder treatment facility with locations throughout the country now. And um, I worked inpatient and outpatient for five years there. So I got a lot of experience uh, treating patients with eating disorders, all different types, and working with some fantastic clinicians and therapists and psychiatrists. And 
it was there at my work at Renfrew that I came across my first patient with PCOS. And it was a patient, and I didn't even really know that much about PCOS because I was right out of grad school. I don't remember hearing much about it. And I knew I was going to have this patient coming in in a day or two, and I was doing research on PCOS, and there really wasn't much there uh, at the time that was helpful. And this patient came in and was just crying in her nutrition assessment, and her doctor just diagnosed her with PCOS and told her to do an Atkins-type diet. Well, this poor girl has a long history or had a long history of bulimia and she was binging and purging and feeling so bad about herself because here's this doctor saying the only way to cure your PCOS is to do Atkins and no carbs are allowed. And she's craving them and binging on them and um, really affecting her mood and her self-esteem and her body image. So it was a big um, eye-opening experience for me. I still will never forget her in, in, that, in that meeting. Um, but that kind of led me to more PCOS work. And there is a huge connection with patients with PCOS who do have an eating disorder. I mean, not knowing their whole lives that they've had PCOS, they may have struggled with their weight, um, tried different diets, been unsuccessful, or maybe lost weight, regained it, lost weight, regained it. And um, having a lot of body image issues too, because the weight's usually in the central part of the body. And women with PCOS tend to have like excess hair growth and acne. So, um, you know, there's a lot of body image and mood disorders attached to that as well. Sure. Yeah. Really interesting. And that's a great, great story to share. So that's nice. And, you know, you always remember those experiences that um, inspire you to really fully commit to the niche. And really, it's not, you know, you are the specialist in PCOS. So it's really great that you provide yeah, all these resources. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. And it's, and it's a condition that I have as well. I don't know if I've mentioned that, but I, I do have PCOS and um, have been able to take control over it myself. And I really enjoy just educating patients and dietitians more about it because it is um, so overlooked, but it can be totally managed uh, once you have it and you know the tools to to take control over it. Absolutely. And what a, what a beautiful story too. It's always wonderful and it's personal. So that's really nice. Thank you for sharing that with us. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about those guidelines. Um, personally, I had not read them too much. I read them when I learned about you and I was trying to, to like really um, submerge myself in the field of PCOS. Can you tell us what stands out to you or what we should know as clinicians, maybe those of us who don't know as much about PCOS or maybe who have a baseline and we want to learn the nuances of the guidelines a little bit more in depth? Sure. Well, yeah, if you want to learn more about the guidelines, there's a huge, I think they're like a thousand pages or something like that. Wow. Um, very comprehensive guidelines. These are the international guidelines for, I think, assessing and diagnosing and treating PCOS. And they were put out by a collaboration of very knowledgeable experts in the field of PCOS. They do all the PCOS studies and work with women with PCOS. And it was also um, the community was open to seeing these guidelines and providing feedback on these guidelines before they were published. So um, it, it, I think the previous publication was five years prior. So it was a much needed. And the guidelines provide information on diagnostic criteria, what is, you know, should be used, what shouldn't be used, um, and treatment guidelines as well. 
and some highlights. I put a blog post on my blog with some of the the highlights of these guidelines as well as what I think are the pros and some cons of it too. So I'll share some of them with you. For example, um, some of the pros is that they recognize that PCOS does persist past menopause. So we do have to treat patients with PCOS as they get older. It doesn't just disappear once they stop um, ovulating and, and reach menopause. Um, and what else was important that they put in the guidelines was that it's very important to screen all patients with PCOS for mood disorders. So we see a much higher prevalence of anxiety and depression among PCOS patients and also screen them for eating disorders sure. because yeah. we see that higher prevalence of eating disorders as well. So I was very happy to see that mentioned in there. Um, it also talks about not just relying on a fasting glucose or a hemoglobin A1C for um, screening for insulin resistance. And insulin resistance, by the way, is not part of the diagnostic criteria for PCOS. So they actually recommend doing a two-hour oral glucose tolerance test along with a fasting insulin okay. to really look to see if a woman with PCOS does have insulin resistance or diabetes. And there's a quick progression that we're seeing once a woman with PCOS has impaired glucose tolerance to full-fledged diabetes is very quick. So that's why we do want to screen patients um, with this test. And then they also recommended the importance of taking vitamin B12 if you're taking metformin, which I was um, really happy to see because metformin, we have really good evidence now that metformin depletes levels of B12. And that's really serious, as we all know. Um, so it's really important that patients who take metformin, which is one of the most common medications used in PCOS, even though it's still not indicated for PCOS, um, to take to take the B12. So what I wasn't happy to see, though, with the guidelines is that it's still recommended birth control pills is like a primary option. And I know I see it in my practice. There's so many more um, natural, if you will, alternatives to managing PCOS and to regulating cycles without taking birth control pills. Because we do know that birth control pills in the long term can increase the risk for blood clots and can increase um, inflammation. We see CRP levels go up with birth control pills. And we also see um, triglyceride levels go up. And this is what we see in PCOS normally. Yeah. Like women with PCOS have high triglycerides usually and have high CRP levels. So uh, um, I don't love the pill. As I know some women do need it, but I, I don't love it as a primary treatment approach. Um, I also disappointed that they didn't recognize the importance of inositol, which is a, a relative of the B vitamins, that there's really good evidence now that women with PCOS have a problem using inositol properly. And inositol is a secondary messenger that helps to relay signals um, involved in insulin regulation. So um, this actually could be part of the reason why women with PCOS have high levels of insulin is that this is this defect is happening. So I see really great um, results in my patients who take inositol in helping to regulate their cycles and get pregnant and even reduce cravings. So um, I know there's not a ton of randomized controlled trials, but there's over, I would say, 80 studies now that use inositol and PCOS. And 
they all had really favorable results. So mm-hmm. I was kind of disappointed on that. And then lastly, the they had a big focus on weight loss and just calorie restriction for the diet and lifestyle changes. And we can do so much more. And that's where as dietitians, we can come in and we can really help patients to um, make better changes in their nutrition and to optimize their health more. And um, I think just focusing on the, I, I tend to take a weight neutral approach with my patients and not focus on the weight at all, but focus more on making healthier lifestyle changes that work for them. And I take out the, you know, the fat shaming, I take out the restrictive diets and help them to become more of a mindful eater and help them to enjoy exercise and health at every size is one approach that works really well for women with PCOS. So I was really disappointed. Here's a population where the majority of women have an eating disorder and a mood disorder. And then these guidelines are saying, we'll just put them on a low calorie diet, you know, cut 500 to a thousand calories. And it doesn't matter what they eat. Just make sure the calories are low enough that they're going to lose weight. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I understand that the frustration with the, the sensitive population and the calorie restriction recommendations. So that's definitely tricky. Definitely tricky. Thank you for sharing your approaches too with the the weight neutral and the mindfulness with this population because I oh, sure it really works. Yeah. yeah. And, and I and I talk about that in my course too. Yeah, we do great. a lot of work with that. Yeah. And I know a lot of dietitians uh really uh are are really curious and hungry about how they can adopt mindful and intuitive practices in clinical nutrition. So your resource is absolutely cutting edge because here you're showing us how you can take these guidelines and and make changes with this population that's so common, you know, one in 10 women. So that's great to see you implement mindful and intuitive eating with PCOS patients in your practice and teach it, teach us. Yes, absolutely. I, I know a lot of clinicians, uh, at least I've heard a lot of clinicians ask, how can you do mindful and intuitive with diabetes? How can you do mindful and intuitive with, you know, clinical situations? And and so it's nice to see there's a resource there to, to guide yeah. dietitians too. So that's excellent. All right. So we love that you help women from all over the world. Um, it's really great that you're able to provide these stories and experiences. Um, tell us a little bit about your books. Have you seen your resources applied in practice? I, I know you have both books for the, the layperson and for, well, for PCOS actually, and then for p- uh, patients and clients with PCOS and dietitians. So how have you seen your resources um, implemented or, or applied in practice? Yeah, so I have a couple different books. I first came out, and that was my first book, and it was geared, you know, it's for dietitians on how to work with um, patients with PCOS throughout the life cycle, and it's very evidence based, and it's now in its second edition. So it's a great resource for dietitians to learn more about PCOS. And then I wrote um, a book called The PCOS Workbook, Your Guide to Complete Physical and Emotional Health. And it was written by myself and my co-author, Dr. Stephanie Matei, who is a psychologist. And we used to run a PCOS support group together. And these are skills that we taught in our PCOS support group. And so we put them together in a workbook. And that has been widely successful 
Um, we're coming up on a 10-year anniversary of it, and it's been one of the best-selling PCOS books for 10 years, which I'm still amazed that it still sells really well. Congrats. And what I love about it is that it can be applied to groups. So a lot of, if you're a dietitian and you're wanting to run a PCOS group or support group, you can use the workbook as a facilitator's guide and do the exercises with clients in a group setting. So, and it's great. Doctors recommend it to patients too. And um, give the, some doctors I know just buy them and give them out to their patients. That's amazing. And, and I yeah. love, that's also really innovative because uh, I have a clinical background and I, I can speak from personal experience that dietitians are looking for resources for groups uh, yeah. because it's really important to be able, like you said, with the collaborative care and coming together with the use of psychologists and being able to provide those resources. So that's great that you are able to, to show us in a group. And then as you, I'm sure you can speak to the power of helping women in a group. It's really special to help. Yeah. This, yeah, great. yeah. And it's great. really, um, it's a self-help book too. So it can be used for both. And then I came out with a cookbook because I kept getting, emails and calls you know do you have any recipes and I have a I do have recipes on my mm -hmm. website but the cookbook came out myself and another dietitian who has PCOS Natalie Zaparinsky who's a fantastic cook and um, we put together 100 recipes into this cookbook and um, it's a whole foods based cookbook amazing yeah. So you can complement the cookbook with the group workshop or the cookbook with the dietitian's guide, and then you're good to go. You've got the, yeah, enough resources. Yeah, a variety of options. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So that's that's really great. I'm happy to hear that providers are using it and handing it out and, and making use of the resource. It's great. So uh, tell us how, you know, how does your work specifically improve fertility? Is that through your resources or are there some examples you can tell us about? Yeah, I mean, we know so much more about how nutrition affects fertility and ovulation and PCOS is the most common cause of ovulatory infertility. And women with PCOS produce usually tons of follicles. It's just that the follicles aren't good quality or they're immature. And that's part of the reason that a lot of women with PCOS struggle to get pregnant because of this hormonal imbalance and the eggs don't fully mature or they're really not good eggs. And so a lot of work with nutrition in, in this population is to help them to optimize their egg quality. So they're really good eggs and um, their fertility as well. So it can really help them get pregnant. Um, we know more about certain supplements like vitamin D plays a direct role in egg quality and ovulation. This inositol I mentioned earlier that was overlooked in the PCOS guidelines, it has been shown to improve egg quality and fertility and help to restore hormone balance. So, um, you know, there's a lot of more knowledge that we have now, and it's such a joy to help patients um, apply this to their lives, like take different supplements that are going to work for them and make some changes in their lifestyle that's going to optimize their fertility and help them become moms. That's great. So it sounds like supplements is a big part of treatment with PCOS as well as the guidelines. It's not because of all the Metformin, it's, I mean, that's just one of medication that, that you mentioned today, but it sounds like getting a, gaining a, a solid grasp of supplementation is really part of what you do with medical nutrition therapy with PCOS. Absolutely. Integrative yeah. medicine. And it's, you know, I, I got to tell you, 
women with PCOS are very knowledgeable. They are desperate for answers. They're not getting it from their physician. I mean, there was one survey that showed the majority of women with PCOS when they got their diagnosis weren't satisfied with the amount of information or the quality of the information that they were given at that time. And I think that they, they go to the internet. I just did a big sure. um, study and we found the internet is the primary source, no surprise, that women with PCOS get their nutrition information. And they are reading up on these supplements and they are hearing other women try these supplements. And as dietitians, we need to be a step ahead of them. We need to know about these supplements because we need to know, first of all, if they're safe and if they're safe in pregnancy. And... Um, you know, what dose is going to be effective and are women with PCOS just wasting their money? Yeah, those are all really big, loaded, important questions, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope that when they go into the internet, they're going to your website and checking out I your know, resources. PCOSnutrition.com. <laughs> yeah, and, and also just as a, a plug here, I did see a webinar that you have and some great information and resources with photos as well on your blog. So for those of you who are interested in purchasing her workbook and checking out her resources, make sure to to check out the blog as well. So that's great. All right. So wonderful. And and so I know we talked a little bit about body image. I was just wondering if you had any other further thoughts about that. It's really it's really great that you take the weight neutral approach and that uh, you're able to practice this. And any other kind of comments or insights that you want to share with us dietitians about um, how sensitive this patient population is with body image or, or how important it is to make sure that you're, you're delicate and sensitive with your approach? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, the body image is just so difficult for women with PCOS. As I mentioned, they have the excess weight around their middle. They might have um, acne. They might be losing hair on the top of their heads, alopecia or balding, and then they have all this excess hair growth too. And so it can make them feel more masculine, definitely less feminine, and not happy with themselves, especially conforming in today's society. So as dietitians, I think we need to end the weight bias against women with PCOS and and, and know that our comments can um, come across, especially a lot of dietitians just have thin privilege. You know, they're just naturally genetically thin and a lot of women with PCOS no matter what they do you know they're just genetically bigger people (laughs) and to recognize that that the BMI may not apply to them that you know forcing them to be 125 pounds if they're 5'5 is um could be very unrealistic and harmful to them so it's I think it's important to recognize that and and to really um, help patients with PCOS know that they're not alone, that this is so common. And that's why attending symposiums, referring patients to symposiums or um, putting on a PCOS support group can be so um, important and um, helpful for other patients. Definitely. Uh, yeah, great resources and tips. And I, I think the support group is really important beyond beyond the intercollaborative, just because I think when you're with other people who are in a similar situation, like another client or patient with PCOS, I think there's a lot of power in that. So that's great. Yeah. All right. And then uh, lastly, I just wanted to ask if you could speak to PCOS patients and their decreased risk of type 2 diabetes and heart disease. So what role can the registered dietitian nutritionist play to support that line of thinking? Sure. So I mentioned earlier that um, women with PCOS do have a higher prevalence for type 2 
diabetes, um, and they do have a lot of cardiovascular risk factors. It hasn't necessarily been proven that women with PCOS do have more cardiovascular disease than those without, but they'd certainly have more risk factors for it. But all of these can be managed. Even the infertility can be managed with diet and lifestyle changes. So as dietitians, that's our primary role. I mean, um, if these are the primary treatment approaches, these are the areas where we can really be helping our patients. And not even just with the food and improving the quality, nutrition quality of their diets, but um, encouraging them to do exercise or physical activity that they enjoy, you know, not that they have so many women associate exercise with punishment. You know, but what activities do you enjoy doing? And even looking at other areas like sleep. Are you getting enough sleep? Do you have sleep apnea? Because sleep apnea is actually very prevalent in the PCOS population due to the higher testosterone levels. And that actually can cause more insulin resistance. Yeah. And affect weight too. So I think as dietitians, we have that unique role that we can spend time with our patients where physicians can't. Sure. And we can, you know, kind of screen them. We should be screening eating disorders as dietitians and, you know, even um, sleep disorders and helping them. Yeah. Do you have any tools that you recommend for screening for those those types of things that on your blog? I have in the um, dietitian's guide, the work, the um, PCOS, the dietitian's guide, there are screening questionnaires in there as well as the course that I put out um, and a nutrition assessment. Yeah. And, and one last thing, when you say eating disorders, is there a specific one more than others or just the umbrella term? Because I know there's, you know, anorexia nervosa and there's binge eating disorder, eating disorder, not otherwise specified like that. There's a whole range of them. So is there yeah, one that stands and, and out? A woman- well, I would say that binge eating disorder is the most um, sure. prevalent in the PCOS population that I see. But of course, they can have a history of anorexia or mm-hmm. also struggle with bulimia too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Any other uh, resources that you want to to mention uh, in addition to your, your guide and your website and then uh, anything associated with something that you've published because it's wonderful that you have, the, you know, these great clinical resources uh, for dietitians. So I'm happy Thank that you have that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, definitely check out my blog, which is at PCOSnutrition.com because I do have a lot of information on these supplements and um, nutrition and then as far as some of the resources, uh, that PCOS Challenge is the nonprofit organization. Uh, I would definitely recommend dietitians support that and check that out. There's a lot of great events they put on throughout the year for PCOS awareness. They even had the first ever PCOS Advocacy Day in Washington, D.C., where we talked to senators and um, members of Congress to try and get PCOS recognized more um, for healthcare. And then lastly, dietitians can also belong to an organization called the Androgen Excess and PCOS Society. And these are the leading experts in PCOS that do all the research and put together the guidelines. And I think it's just me and maybe one or two other dietitians that are members of it in the U.S. Um, And it'd be great to have more members there. They put out an annual conference and um, some smaller conferences, too. And they're worldwide, so you can get to great locations, too. I think the next one is in Sweden. Oh, that sounds great. So that's it. You want to go, Libby? (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, that in Australia. Those are both on my list. That was last year. (laughs) 
Amazing. So very, very wonderful. Uh, really great tip. I love that. Because again, if you're listening and you're involved in women's health, PCOS, etc. Like this is a really fantastic way to network and, and yeah, collaborate absolutely. and innovate. And then, you know what? The um, American Society of Reproductive Medicine has a nutrition subspecialty that dietitians can be part of. And um, they put out some great conferences every year, too, that, and a lot of nutrition in, in them, too. I must say, you know, as you know, I think it's just as important to network in dietetics as it is to network outside of it. So, you know, I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of like the Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics. I think I've, I've, got, I've learned so much from collaborating with them and with my previous work in peds. I have a, a background in peds. Uh, so for those of you who are involved in women's health, it's really important that you're looking beyond just, you know, what the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics or Dietitian Connection offers and make sure that you're collaborating with, you know, our colleagues and our peers and, and what organizations they're involved with, because that's how you're going to really spread the word, right? That's how you're going to get PCOS and your your niche um, and your clinical backgrounds more known across, across, interdis- across disciplines. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Any last final words today before we uh, before we wrap up? It's been an absolute pleasure, Angela, getting to know you, and, and it's very inspiring. I, I love hearing about your background. Oh, thanks, Libby. I had a lot of fun. I always love the opportunity to spread more awareness about PCOS, so thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you so much, and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast. If you haven't already, we would love for you to check out the other episodes that we have available. We speak to trailblazers, dietitians who are doing amazing work within their practice and their businesses, and also those who have really changed and advanced our profession. There's a whole library to choose from. And if you did enjoy the show, it would be so great if you could leave a review for us on iTunes and also uh, to pass this podcast on to your colleagues and friends. Thanks again for listening.